sir. This is episode 36 of the Progression Health Podcast. I'm here with Gary McGowan. Gary, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks very much for having me, Ross. So my name is Gary McGowan. I'm from Killarney, County Kerry, here in Ireland. And uh, I'm a, a personal trainer and uh, a student alongside that. So uh, very interested in all things health and fitness. I've been for many, many years. And uh, that's why I end up on podcasts like this. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You have a wealth of experience for somebody so young. So you are a qualified physio as well. Is that right? I am indeed. Brilliant. Yeah. So what about uh, being a physio didn't appeal to you that you're, you're now studying to be a doctor? It's like uh, pretty uh, impressive to kind of do both, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I, it's not, not necessarily that being a, a physio doesn't appeal to me because I definitely do a lot of physio work in my work with triage triage is the name of my business that I run. We've me and my, me and Patty Farrell, and there's another physio on the team. We have a good few coaches. And so I do online coaching and part of that. And and previously when I did one-to-one personal training, part of that has always involved physio like work because I get clients who are injured, who other trainers don't want to work with. So it's still very much a big part of, of what I do in terms of my work. Um, and obviously the knowledge has carried over to some degree to, to medicine as well. But to answer your question, I didn't want to take the physiopath in isolation. It just wasn't, um, it wasn't something I had ever really intended to go hundred percent on, to be honest, like even going into physiotherapy, I, I had never thought that I would, you know, just be a physio. And then that was, that was my option. I, I didn't think of that, to be honest, because I initially did sports science um first year sports science i decided you know what wouldn't it be good to do something that i would get a a professional qualification out of and still gain the knowledge i want in these fields i'm interested in um so i kind of did the physio degree with the knowledge that i wasn't going to be all in on being a physio but that i might use that knowledge somehow to pair with the health and fitness side of things so that was kind of the reason for that And, and during my time in physio physios physio gives you exposure to medicine it gives you exposure to the hospital environment and different disease states etc so that was kind of got, what got me interested in medicine just got me more interested in the medical side of things pathophysiology you know the treatment of disease and so on brilliant yeah so the more personal training i do the more i realize the crossover with as uh, they call it physical therapists out here but uh yeah physio work and just injuries as well so you definitely have like a really good all-around background um so then with the like becoming a doctor what uh do you have a plan around that like moving forward is that like does that tie into like kind of a, a personal training plan or is it just you're following your interest your passion yeah it's a hard it's a hard one because that's that's kind of what i'm asking myself every day now at the moment as i kind of heading into my final year now at the start of final year and it kind of comes to the point where i have to try to make decisions about the the future and like at the moment like the personal training side of things, the fitness business that's going really well and has been going really well for a while. Um, gaining medical knowledge and being a doctor obviously gives that business additional credibility and gives us additional options in terms of the content we can put out and that type of thing. But I, I wouldn't say my plan is, you know, solely to just use the medical degree for that purpose. Um, I'm kind of trying to decide at the moment what exact specialty I'd like to do in medicine and whether or not I want to do something that is for the purpose of blending with triage, like purely, like purely out of interest or in terms of what I'm most interested in, in medicine, I'm most interested in neurosurgery and a couple of other surgical fields. And if I do go down that path, then that would involve going all in on that. You couldn't really be trying to juggle anything else if you were doing neurosurgery or at least very little. So um, yeah, at the moment, it's about deciding uh, what sort of trade-offs I want to accept, not just in terms of the work I do with triage or the work I do associated with fitness, but also in terms of other aspects of one's quality of life. Do I want to be able to see my kids regularly if or when I have them? You know, Do I want to see my girlfriend regularly? Do I want to see my family? If you do neurosurgery and you're working 100 hours a week, it's very difficult to do all those things and to live a decent quality of life outside the hospital. So there does 
the decisions to be wrestled with. Them. The Progression Health Podcast has teamed up with TRX. So TRX is a bodyweight training piece of equipment that you can hook up anywhere, anytime. And uh, I highly recommend it. I use it in every session with my clients. I use it to warm up and also for stretching. Uh, but if you are traveling, which is where I recommend everyone use it, you know, it's hard to get to a gym. Uh, it's hard to find the time. But you could literally work out from your hotel room with the TRX um, and the door attachment that it has where it doesn't damage the door, but it gives you an effective workout. I also like to add in other things like uh, glute bands and uh, resistance bands. Um, but once you have the TRX, then you can figure all that out. So get yourself 50% off on the TRX home workout equipment with the code Progression Health TRX and boost your workout effectiveness and consistency. Progression Health Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy service which will help you to more effectively manage your mental health. Mental health is very important and it's something that all of us are realizing now, especially after the pandemic. During the pandemic, for me especially, it was very challenging and I, I reached out to BetterHelp. I uh, tried out a few of their licensed therapists and settled on one for the majority of the pandemic and I found uh, the help that I received invaluable. And the great thing also is that you can speak to your therapist outside of sessions. Um, if it's not working out, you can switch. Very affordable. It's really easy to use also. Um, and if someone hasn't tried therapy before, but you're kind of, you know, you're curious, I would highly recommend BetterHelp. So what we've done is uh, we've got a sign up link I'll attach in the show notes. And basically you can get a discount to get started and uh, start improving your mental health today. So BetterHelp for better mental health. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to make them too quickly. So yeah. all the qualifications you have, do you think that uh, is kind of in a response to, we'll say like the fitness industry or personal training, maybe kind of like lacking those qualifications because I see kind of like a trend with fitness companies like similar to yours where they're becoming like more qualified or they have like more layers to them. Mm. Uh, what would your thoughts be around that? Yeah, I mean, there's probably some truth to that in that, you know, my interest in personal training and health and fitness drove me to go on and you know get further education however it's not necessarily for the it's not necessarily that i think that should be the standard of personal training or anything rather i think like one of the things that as you said would be common among some other businesses and also triage as well is that we want to have to some degree a higher level of education or a diversified um staff so for example we've got you know people on the team who have degrees in nutrition those who have degrees in physiotherapy nicola who's got a degree in medicine i'll have a degree in medicine soon patty's got a degree in biochemistry etc we've got this bit of diversity within the team and what that means then is that as we shift towards being a business that's more so emphasize emphasizing the education of personal trainers we can do so being comfortable with the fact that right we know we have more knowledge than you need to know to be a personal trainer. And we're only going to deliver to trainers what they actually need to know. Cause I think that's really important. So if you're, if you're, you know, an undergraduate student, let's say doing a degree, you're not just being educated by people who have just finished the four year, four year degree. You know, you're being educated by people who have a PhD. They have far more knowledge than you would actually need to complete this four year degree. And that's the kind of way I look at, um, fitness education businesses as well there should be a good few layers of education above what is required in order to deliver that knowledge effectively uh, while still being of course you know tied to the ground skin in the game in terms of understanding daily coaching practice like I'm not saying trainers need to understand medical knowledge but if i have a good understanding of anatomy to a medical degree and uh, physiology to a medical degree then it's much easier to relate the level of physiology and anatomy that we would be required for a personal trainer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like a quote I heard recently is like, you can only take somebody as far as you've gone. I know yes. that's very reductionistic, but like, yeah, if if you only have a master's, you can't take somebody to a PhD level or, you know, kind of uh, similarly uh, thinking. So, yeah, it definitely, it, it does you no harm at all to have extra qualifications. Um, so, yeah, just kind of bringing it back then to the actual like skin in the game and, you know, the training side of things. What do you enjoy most just fundamentally about like exercise training um, that really kind of keeps you going and working out? My my perspective on that has probably has changed quite a bit in the last maybe three to five years, because I would have initially started out training. I was more so interested in just your kind of typical lifting weights in the gym, getting stronger, building muscle, having good physique, etc. That was what initially got me into training. Um, However, over the last few years, I've delved into 
a few different types of a few different methods of training. You know, I started doing a bit more running, started working on my cardio a bit more. I took up Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, you know, that's probably like my primary training goal at the moment. So for me, that's my primary focus right now is to get better at jiu-jitsu, get better at grappling and my weight training and any cardio that I do is effectively a supplement to that, um, which is very different to how I would have approached training in the past. Uh, but overall, I think the the baseline really in terms of if I get down to the root of what I enjoy about training, I like the idea that you show up to the gym, you have a plan, you follow the plan. Following the plan makes you feel good, as in you leave the gym feeling good in terms of your mental health, and your physical health. So you feel better in the moment, but also then long term, uh, you can see that if you follow the plan, you actually improve. And that's a powerful lesson that carries over to every area of your life then. So there are both short and long term benefits to exercising in any capacity. I think that's very powerful. The friction, obviously, is making the time each day, showing up to the gym, putting in the effort while you're there. But if you can get over those things and experience the short-term and long-term gain of regular exercise, I think that's ultimately what is the common thread between, you know, whether it's boxing or jujitsu or bodybuilding or powerlifting. It's this idea that you can follow a plan, you can get these mental health and physical health benefits from doing so, and you can actually continuously see progress if you're training in an appropriate way. Yeah, yeah, you can always get better. And then the more modes of exercise you have, the more uh, variety you have and ways to get better as well, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and then just with, like, working in the, in the hospital and doing, like, I'd imagine you're doing more hours. How do you find doing, we'll say, the extra workload if you're doing that, but also managing your health? Is that, like, would you kind of relate to your clients a bit more who are, like, maybe a bit older and they're, like, trying to juggle everything, they say they're busy and that kind of stuff? Do you find uh, you feel that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that's been going on for a number of years. It's always, it's always a challenge. Like for example, today is probably a good case because it, it just demonstrates the kind of juggling act where I started, I started working um, on my triage work. So that's the fitness side of things at half five until half seven this morning. Then I went to the hospital. It's now whatever, half six when we started the podcast. So I just got home before this, I was in the hospital for 11 hours or so, or 10 hours, maybe take away the commuting. And now recording this podcast with you, I'll come off that. There's about three or four hours left between that point of the day and me going to bed. And in that time, the intention is to get an hour workout and to get at least an hour or two of work with triage again, um, and then to repeat. So with that type of time pressure, it's definitely very difficult to prioritize your own health. And I, and I definitely accept some trade-offs in terms of um, dealing with more stress than probably is, you know, good for one's health or optimal for one's health, at least. Um, probably sleeping a little bit less than I should every now and then. I'm not too bad. Probably used to be worse, but not too bad. Um, and then in the nutrition side of things, it can be very difficult to eat well if you're constantly on the go and you're in a rush and you don't have time to cook food. Um, generally I tend to keep my nutrition in a decent enough place. Like I don't tend to come home and binge if I've had a long day or, um, just eat crap or anything like that. Like that does happen. Sometimes I'll get a takeaway if I haven't eaten all day, but most of the time I keep my nutrition relatively decently in check, um, and within my calorie macro needs, et cetera. And then the training side of things, obviously it's very difficult to train when you're tired, you've been working long hours, you know, you just want to lie down on the couch, but to be honest, when I come home in the evening now and I'm tired, like I know that when I go out to the gym and, and I do have the luxury of having some gym equipment out the back here in my house, it's it's a case of being able to go out there, commit to starting it. And I know as soon as I start and certainly as soon as I finish, I'll feel much better. I'll actually feel more energetic. So um, I think that a lot of that just comes with experience. I, I definitely do, as you say, uh, empathize with my clients a lot more because I I do live in a way that's relatable for a lot of my clients in terms of them trying to juggle multiple things. Um, and that definitely, that definitely helps me a lot in my work as a coach, because it, I'm not, I'm not, you know, deluded into thinking that, because you see this with some personal trainers, maybe where, especially online coaches, 
where maybe all they do is do four to six hours of check-ins a day on their laptop and they can do it from anywhere. They have no other responsibilities. They can train whenever they want, eat whenever they want. And then they're advising someone who maybe has four kids and a really intense job and, you know, elderly parents that they're looking after just totally. It's very, very difficult to empathize with that if you haven't been there. So it probably brings me a little bit closer to some of those clients, as you say. Yeah. And some of those clients that you're referring to that, you know, that I would have myself, they say that the the workout they do, it's like the highlight of their day. Would you get a sense of that? So even though you're doing a pretty hectic schedule and you're doing so much work, have you got to a place where you actually look forward to the workout? Like this is my kind of time. A hundred percent. Cause, and that's like jujitsu in particular really, really serves that purpose because what I want, because like, like when I'm, when I'm at work, whether it's triage or it's, you know, medicine, whatever it happens to be, it's all, my head's always on, you know, there's always something going on. You're always trying to process something or think about something or solve a problem or stressing about something. And that can be very taxing. And there's nothing nicer than just being able to go and train, just put in effort and just have your mind suddenly dissolve those problems, because that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like they're dissolving as you're working hard. Um, and, and that's and jujitsu in particular, or else really a really hard cardio session as well. I find to be great. Um, I find that I'm, my head just starts to, you know, detach from, from those problems. I'm able to just focus on the work that I'm doing. And suddenly I feel like I'm in my own world. Um, sometimes in weight training, I don't get the same effect because there's always that period of time between sets where you're just kind of sitting there and, you know, if you want to do an effective workout and actually get stronger, you do need to take a couple of minutes of rest. So sometimes I find that my head dips back in then to thinking about work or thinking about college. But when it's hard cardio or jujitsu or something like that, I find it's it's an excellent form of escapism for me. Yeah, yeah, really, it's a good stress reliever. Um, and then just with your injury, how have you you managed that? Because like everybody is going to have an injury at some point. Um, but if you look forward to your workouts and you probably have been able to work out as you normally would have, how has that been for you to uh, to manage that? Yeah, so. I- I was actually asked this. I did a podcast with another guy last week and I was asked this question. And um, I think, yeah, I think I would, I would stand by my answer in that for me, I suppose I should give some context context for the listener. So I had a full hamstring rupture, which means that you take the three hamstring muscles that attach just under your bum onto the bony part there and they ripped off that bone. What that means is that, you know, if it pulls away so far, it's not going to attach back on itself. So I had to have a surgical repair, um, had that surgical repair about nine weeks ago. And then I just got out of my knee brace uh, and crutches and stuff about three weeks ago. So I spent about six weeks fairly immobilized. Um, some pain, obviously a lack of, of mobility and function. And there were some dis- difficult elements to that for sure. But as I said on that last podcast, and as I think I mentioned on my Instagram as well, I think that one of the things that's really important to protect you against the psychological consequences of injury is to have other things that you focus on in life and to have some other elements of your identity. Because you see this, for example, when athletes retire. If you were a professional athlete and you retire, suddenly there's this massive void in your life that nothing fills. And for a lot of people that retire, It might be alcohol and drugs. It might be gambling. It might be other types of behaviors that are suddenly starting to fill in that void. And that sense of identity for them was solely based on sport. For a lot of bodybuilders or, you know, people who are really into their physique, their whole identity rests on their training, their nutrition, how they look, what their weight is, etc. It's all focused on that. So if anything happens that they're not able to do that anymore, suddenly they're dealing with the psychological consequences. In my case, if I was solely focused on my training, that was my number one thing. I had nothing else that I cared about or had going on. And I suddenly got injured. Of course, I'm going to be in a psychological spiral. It's going to be very, very difficult to deal with. But thankfully, I was able to divert more of my attention towards my work, towards, you know, my studies, towards other things that I have going on in my life. Because I don't just view myself as 
Gary, the, the athlete, you know, that's not my sole identity. Um, was I, was I still keen to keep up training? Yeah, for sure. And I did a little bit, but not near as much as I normally would. I was only able to do a little bit of upper body stuff. Um, but I think that's the biggest protective factor for me is having that, those few different elements to my life so that when one thing maybe isn't going so well, I can divert some more attention somewhere else. And I think that keeps me pretty stable. Yeah. Yeah. You have other interests to turn to. So just kind of like on a, on a basic level, like let's say for example, you, you manage your weight or your physique, so you have your nutrition and then like your, your level of energy or your cardiovascular fitness, I'd imagine they would have taken a hit. Um, and if they did, like, how did you kind of, you feel with those sort of challenges being less active, you know, your, your calories would have been affected and that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. And, and on to that note, I suppose one of the, one of the things I do note when I'm not exercising is that I definitely, there's definitely like this kind of level of low level anxiety that feels like it bubbles up that I, that I need to release. It's like, it's like, you've got a fully charged battery that just wants to be empty. That's how I always describe the feeling of when I don't exercise. Um, and that obviously was not able to be satisfied to the same extent, because I find that if I'm able to go out and really, you know, crush a cardio session or do a really hard session when I'm feeling like that, that's what clears it. But, you know, when my leg was that bad, like I could only do a few bicep curls, you know, lice, chest presses, etc. There was nothing really where I could go out and just, you know, empty the tank and get after it. So I'm definitely not saying there were no psychological, psychological consequences because I definitely didn't have that same release. Um, in terms of the um, body weight, nutrition side of things, my appetite uh, tends to regulate itself very, very well these days. I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, in that if I'm, if I stop training, I just won't be hungry. You know, I know a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people maintain their kind of ravenous appetite, regardless of how much they're exercising. But for me, my, my appetite will skyrocket when I'm training a lot. And then it will totally drop off if I'm not training. Like I'll, it could be some days if I was just working, it could be four o'clock in the day. And I'd be thinking, Oh God, I haven't eaten. You know, that happens if, um, I'm not exercising. So for me, during that time, it was actually more of a case of, you know, trying to remind myself to have meals so that I could support my recovery. So I didn't really like my body composition did probably worsen a little bit because what I was trying to do was be around maintenance, probably ended up in a slight surplus, but I wasn't training hard enough to be stimulating muscle growth. So probably gained a little bit of, a little bit of body fat, lost a little bit of muscle, especially obviously in the legs. Um, but it, that didn't impact me too much because I was, I, I really just wanted the leg to, to be better. That was the primary goal. Um, so yeah, I wasn't tracking calories. I was just allowing my appetite to kind of regulate itself and then making a conscious effort. If my appetite was too low to try to especially get my protein up. Um, and, and that was, that was most of how I tried to handle it. Sounds good. Yeah. And then just. I'd imagine a lot of people, like even the listeners who wouldn't be experienced with the injury process, the rehab process, they'll be like, oh, I've worked so hard at the gym or whatever sport they play, and I'm going to lose all my progress, all my gains. Did you kind of, you know, have that challenge or do you have any advice for anyone who, you know, if they get injured and they have to manage that side of things? Yeah, it's, I mean, part of it is firstly understanding that some things are beyond your control. And I know this is so much easier said than done. But stressing about things that have already happened and that are now beyond your control and can't be changed is only going to make your situation worse. Um, and I suppose that that comes from to some degree. You can use like the principles of of stoic philosophy to try to help yourself there. Um, kind of related to some of the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of challenging irrational thoughts. Like for example, if I'm wallowing about the fact that I got injured and I'm saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose all my gains. I'm never going to get back to where I was trying to write down. I would, if I would advise someone else, if they're worrying about it, you know, write down those thoughts, try to challenge them, try to say, is, the, is this actually rational? Is this actually a reasonable outcome? Is this something that's likely to happen? Is it something I have control over and try to just focus your attention on the things that are really within your control. And the way I would try to do that um, in my case is right. My, I couldn't 
walk a few weeks ago. Okay. I wasn't able to walk. Now I can walk and I, there, I've walked, you know, multiple kilometers, huge win. I'm not worried about Gary, the deadlifted, whatever, 220 kilos for reps that doesn't exist right now. Doesn't exist. So I'm not, I'm not even setting that as a goal. Like I, so for some people, it's helpful to have the longer term vision of like, that's the level of strength I want to get to. For me, I'm focused far more on what's the next step in this process? What's the next step in this process? Because something I've learned over the years is that rehab is very, very unpredictable. And you'll drive yourself crazy if you're trying to have this super linear process of at this month, I'm going to be here, then here, then here. All you'll end up doing is disappointing yourself because almost inevitably there's going to be peaks and troughs. You know, there'll be weeks where your knee is sore. There'll be weeks where your back is sore. There'll be weeks where you're performing brilliantly. And then the weeks where you're suddenly regressing. That's just part of the rehab process. And I understand that's part of the process. So for me, I'm thinking, right, I can walk now. Next goal is to be able to run a kilometer or jog a kilometer, you know, Um, because I haven't done that yet. So that would be a nice thing to work towards. Um, When I last tried to do a lying leg curl, I wasn't able to do a single rep with no weight on the machine. My hamstring was that weak, no weight on the machine. So for me, I'd like to get to being able to do the first plate for 10 reps. It's those small little milestones that allow you to feel like you're building up momentum. And again, while I think it's nice to have an end vision of where you want to get to, I really, really encourage people to focus on that next step and actually celebrate those wins. Because that's how you start to, you know, have a positive psychological experience during the rehab process. Because like the psychological part of getting injured and the rehab process is is almost just as if not more challenging than the physical aspect. Because, for example, when I had my injury and then I had my surgery, yeah, a couple of weeks of pain. Yeah, for sure. That wasn't so nice. But after that, like I'm not in pain anymore. It's more so functional deficits. and. The way that that manifests manifests as a challenge, of course, there's some functional challenges. You can't go walking, you can't go climbing, but a lot of it is the psychological aspect. And that's what a lot of people struggle with. So what I suggest is map out those small little mini milestones. What's the next step? What's the next step? What's the next step? That's how you build momentum. And you'll be six months, a year down the line, and suddenly you'll be saying to yourself, oh my God, how did I get here? I didn't even, I didn't even know this. We were just adding a rep here and there. We were adding an extra hundred meters here and there. And suddenly I'm running 10 K or suddenly I'm deadlifting 150 kilos again. That's how you get there. It's not by going from A to Z. It's taking each small step along the way. Yeah. Very much like training in the gym and using progressive overload. So, exactly. Exactly. So with uh, just the injury as a whole, what has been like the single most like challenging aspect of it? And then the most rewarding aspect of it. I think the most challenging aspect is, um, I suppose, I think the fact that I had to have surgery was the most challenging aspect because when it comes to, when it comes to a surgical intervention, right? So that hamstring was not attached. So I had, I had, I had a choice of getting surgery and fixing that or hopefully fix, fixing that or just not having hamstrings anymore. So the fact that I had to have surgery, I was more than happy to have surgery, of course. It was the right choice. But I knew going into surgery that this still mightn't work. And even now, I know that it might not reattach properly. You know, my last MRI just a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's better than the initial one, pre-surgery. Like surgery definitely helped, but it's still you know, it's questionable whether or not I'll get back to full strength. It's questionable whether or not those hamstrings will really be injury resistant once they're challenged again. There's still a lot of fibers that aren't attached. There's still a lot of damage to the muscles. So I think that for me is the hard part because you're no longer dealing with the same anatomy that you would have been. You're now dealing with anatomy that has, you know, been surgically intervened on and has certain limitations that I'm hoping my body has the capacity to overcome. Um, now, it's not something I worry about. I, I, because again, like my perspective on that is 
I put my trust in my surgeon. He's a very competent surgeon. He has my trust. Um, and for me now, it's about following through on the rehab. So I'm focusing on what I can't control. But I think that just that element of things where it's a severe injury and it required surgical intervention and you're now dealing with slightly different anatomical state. I think that's that was definitely a challenging part and, and remains a challenging part because there's just some uncertainty as to, you know, will I will I get back to full capacity? Um, so that'd be a challenge. And then I think the second thing you said was the most less- rewarding then, but be the most yeah, rewarding part of the process. Yeah, I think um let me see. Most rewarding part. I do you know what? I actually think I think the fact that it didn't affect me that much psychologically was really, really reassuring for me. Because I thought it would, to be honest. I thought I thought it it hurt me a lot more than it did. Even like the second that I went to the ground, the second I hurt it and I felt I felt the pop. I knew it was ruptured. I said, fuck it. I'm after rupturing my hamstring. And the people around me were like, ah, no, you didn't. It's probably just a strain. No, I was like, no, I'm after rupturing it. It popped off. And the second I went to the floor, I thought, oh, that's my summer ruined. You know, all my plans. I I wanted to do all this jujitsu training and, oh, I'm not going to be able to train because I just come out of exams and a, a tough year at college. I was so excited just to have an intense summer of training, you know, going on hiking. I'm an active person. Love that. And I was like, oh, my God, the next few months are just ruined now. And, and I thought it'd be a lot more of a negative experience. But to be honest, it wasn't in the end. And that's that's reassuring for me because it it just it taught me that, you know, if this happens again or if I happen to have any sort of illness or for whatever other reason I, I can't train um, that I'm able to still be, a, you know, well-functioning, well-adjusted person in the absence of being Gary, the the athlete, if you will. So I think that's a valuable lesson for me. And I think that's probably a valuable lesson that a lot of trainees would like to, to have in their lives as well. Because I know a lot of people who even struggle with, you know, going on holidays or moving away for work and things because they get real anxious about the thought of not being able to train at their best for a while because it's such a core part of their identity. So um, I think that's been really valuable for me. Yeah, dealing with uncertainty, like you said, in the challenges is tough, but knowing how strong you are, how capable you are when faced with adversity is like an invaluable lesson. Uh, yeah, so you're kind of talking a bit about uh, doing the cardiovascular training, the running, the gym, and then uh, jiu-jitsu. So we're really talking about like concurrent training, so like doing two different modes of training at the same time. So can you just talk about how you manage that and recommendations for people who are trying to do like the gym will say, and some like, you know, some other sports. So for example, I'm doing, uh, I do resistance training and then I'm doing a bit of running. What would you say just to keep in mind when you're doing the two of them at the same time? Yeah. So this is a really interesting topic because it's an area where there's, I think there's um, a lot of, a lot of common mistakes that people make and then maybe some misconceptions that are later layered on top of that. So if you look back to some of the, the early research on concurrent training, um, this kind of spurred a lot of concerns about people not doing cardio because it was going to ruin their gains. Um, but the research that demonstrated those initial effects was basically taking a intense weight training program that you or I might do if we were focused solely on weight training and an intense endurance training program. If you or I were focused solely on endurance training and lumping them together. And that, and that for me is the biggest mistake that most people make is that they, instead of saying, like you said, how should a concurrent athlete train? They say, how does a runner train and how does a bodybuilder train? Cool, going to do both. Okay, That's not how it works. Because unfortunately, there are limits to how much we can recover from and how much we can adapt to as well. And if you go in just trying to do the the bodybuilder's program and the runner's program, that's going to run you into the ground. It's going to compromise your results in both domains and it's also going to probably put you at increased risk of injury and illness etc so what i always suggest to people is and this goes in both ways but let's just use the example of someone who's maybe only been going to the gym lifting weights and they want to add in some cardio 
I always say to them that if you want to, you know, take up some running and you're now going to the gym, let's say five days per week, training hard five days per week, start with, start by taking your weight training down to maybe 60% to start is what I would say. 60% of the amount of volume that you were doing previously. Um, so for example, if you were doing five hard days, now you do three hard days, okay? Or maybe you just do five moderate days, but let's say three hard days, and then you add in your two runs on the other days. Because if you can start at 60%, you know you've opened it up. You know you've opened up a decent chunk of your recovery capacity, your energy, your time, et cetera. And you can then see where that threshold is because it, it genuinely might be that you can do those five hard days and run twice a week. And then it depends how hard you want to take the running. If you want to run five days a week because you're training for a marathon, you're going to need to bring that percentage of your weight training back down lower and lower and lower. And that's often what I'll do with, with concurrent athletes because I've I coached a client of mine, a very impressive client, towards um, 100K run last year. And when he was doing that, you know, obviously we had to do a lot of, of running, but he's a big guy, like a big, strong guy, um, you know, deadlifts 200 plus for reps, um, not a, a not not your classic ultra marathon runner. But so he had a big background in weight training. And what we did is that, you know, let's say six months out, he might have been doing four weight training days per week and maybe three runs. Then when it came to four months out, he might have been doing three weight training days per week, three to five runs, you know, three months, two months, one month out, you get where we're going, where we got down to the point where we we were doing at the end, just one to two maintenance weight training sessions per week while really pushing on with the running. And that's how you should be viewing it. And I think that if people can start to maybe periodize their training a bit more, if they're, especially if they want to take two things seriously, that's probably the wisest way of doing things where let's say you want to run a marathon. When is the marathon? Okay. Pick a date and then adjust your training accordingly. So let's say it's August. Now you want to run a marathon next March. You can continue your weight training, you know, to a pretty intense level, maybe up to November, December. And then as you get into the early months of next year, you'll focus solely on the running. So it just depends on how serious you want to take each respective activity. But the main pieces of advice would be, number one, don't try to do both. Try to do a bit of both. That's how you will be able to start with concurrent training. Um, number two, don't do it for the purpose of burning extra calories. This is one of the biggest mistakes. People take on extra activities and they tell themselves they're doing it because they want to do these extra activities. But really, they're just justifying burning more calories so they can eat more. <laughs> and that's not always smart, okay? I would encourage you to try to fuel your training. So don't take on running without changing your nutrition, then push yourself into a massive deficit. Of course, you're not going to recover well from your training then. So try to fuel it if you're genuinely training for performance. Um, and then I suppose the, the last thing then would be to be very honest with yourself. Be honest about what it is... Oh, what it is that you can recover from and what it is that you are actually trying to, to achieve from your training. Because a lot of guys will be very resistant to drop back their weight training because they say, oh no, I need five days. It's what I need. I have to be in the gym five days. I have to be taking every step to failure just because it's what they've always done. But deep down, they know that they don't actually need that much to just maintain. And if you can just get comfortable with the idea that it's okay to just maintain in the gym for a while, and that that level of maintenance is actually much lower than what's required to progress, that's going to allow you to bring in these other activities into your training regime a lot more smoothly. Yeah, it's making me think, don't do extra activity for fat loss. Like, don't try and use cardio as a way to, like, uh, hit your physique goals. It's just, it's going to be, like, ineffective. Um, and then also, yeah, like, kind of in the words of Jocko, like, you know, prioritize and execute, like, prioritize, yeah, like, a time frame, a timeline. Um, and then that'll simplify everything from there. Um, so then just in terms of managing activity and injuries and pain. So like, can you explain the difference between pain and injuries? Um, and then would you say then for jujitsu, I just, I feel like maybe this is a myth, but I feel like there's a higher rate of injuries in jujitsu. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So one of the difficult things about, um, studying rates of injury in, in any sport is that we don't always have a clear idea of what an injury actually is. 
Um, like if you talk to jujitsu guys, they'll always have a joint that's at them. <laughs> they'll always have something that's at them. And some of this is down to the nature of the sport and some of it's down to the nature of the athlete. And it's also down to what a person considers to be an injury. Um, and that's kind of what you're getting out of the difference between, you know, pain and injury. Because, for example, with jujitsu, you're taking your joints into all of these really weird and uncomfortable positions that you're probably not going to get into during other activities. So, for example, if someone gets me into uh, a type of shoulder lock called an Americana or a Kimura and your shoulders really rotated, it's putting loads of strain on your rotator cuff muscles, all the internal joint capsule and ligaments that you wouldn't really experience during any exercise in the gym. And if I have deep delayed onset muscle soreness in that as a result, it's going to feel like a real deep within the joint pain that, you know, feels like an injury. Is it injury or is it just kind of muscle soreness that is similar to what I might experience in the gym? Sometimes it can be difficult to tell those things apart, particularly in a sport where you're being so forcefully put into these extreme positions. Um, so when it comes to like pain, like, Pain can be present in the pain can exist in the presence or absence of tissue damage. So that's one of the difficult things about pain is that it doesn't always correlate with the amount of damage that exists within a tissue, whether that be, you know, a muscle or a ligament or a bone or whatever. Um, and that's very difficult for people to conceptualize sometimes because they have this idea that hurt equals harm. So if I have pain, then that means something is damaged and I need to stop doing this activity. But the reality is that there's a lot more going on at the, the level of the brain and the spinal cord and the nervous system that modulates uh, the level of pain that someone will experience. And that's going to vary between individuals, it's going to vary by culture, um, and it might even vary within microcultures like sports, for example, where in some sports you might actually take pride in just you know tolerating your pain and, and locking it down and, and not, letting it, not letting it show. And that doesn't mean that the internal experience is necessarily different, but the, the suffering might be a bit different and the way that that manifests for the, the way that that stops someone from training. So jujitsu probably does have relatively high rate of injury. And, you know, a, a lot of this does come down to the fact that you, you have, you, you have a lot of control in jujitsu in terms of if you're put into an extreme position, you always have the choice to tap. It's just training. So it's, you can liken it to the gym where let's say Ross, you're doing a squat this evening in the gym and you're, which I will be doing. <laughs> yeah. Good man. Right. What's your, what's your five rep max on a squat? Uh, so it's in pounds. Uh, so like three, I don't know, three forty or something. Nice. So Ross is going in this evening. He's loading up three forty on the bar, five rep max. He does his five reps. He doesn't have any more reps left in the tank, but he goes for a sixth anyway. So you go for that sixth, you're grinding it out, you're, you're stuck, the bar is crushing you, and you fall to the floor under the bar, okay? You had the choice to tap out on that fifth rep. You had the choice to stop and to be smart. This is why we use things like RPE, for example, in terms of auto-regulation in the gym. In jiu-jitsu, you have the same thing in the form of a tap. You say, right, tap, and I don't want you to put that joint any further. Unfortunately, a lot of guys, much like the guys in the gym who don't want to stop anywhere before failure, a lot of guys in jiu-jitsu do the same thing, where they'll let someone take their joint further and further and further and further. And even though it's not competition, all they're doing is training in the gym with their friends, their training partners in their club. They'll still let their, their partner push their joint far too far. And there's a crack, a pop. And that's how you ultimately end up getting injured a lot of the time um, in jiu-jitsu. Of course, there are more catastrophic injuries, like you fall awkwardly, two of you fall together on top of each other. That's kind of what happened in my situation where it was a takedown type of event. I fell, the guy's weight was kind of on top of me. My leg was overstretched. Very difficult to prevent those types of things, like in many sports. But there is definitely a lot that people have control over that they don't take control over. And that's what I always say in terms of bodybuilders, powerlifters, etc. One of the best things you can do to try to reduce your risk of injury is to be a mature athlete in terms of managing the load that you're exposed to both in terms of your your effort like are you taking every step to failure do you really need to do that no you don't okay 
If you're doing that all the time, that's immature training, especially like long-term over multiple decades. Um, so you just have to be smart with those things. Uh, I didn't answer your question really about the difference between pain and injury. As I said, pain can exist in the presence or absence of tissue damage. Pain is effectively defined as an unpleasant um, sensory and emotional experience um, that can that that basically resembles uh, tissue da- damage or can exist in the presence or absence of tissue damage. That's roughly the definition given by the International Association um, for the Study of Pain. And that's clearly a very messy definition. And it is for a very simple reason. And that's because pain is very complex. Okay. Um, but injury itself then is is probably, injury is defined in a number of different ways as well. Um, I didn't look up the definition before this or anything, but uh, sometimes it'll be stu- it'll be used in studies in terms of how, whether an athlete was called was um, had to miss a session as a result of this insult, um, or sometimes people might say, "All right, an injury is very clearly something that it, where tissue damage is present," but again, that that's not really enough because a lot of us have different problems that we could identify if we did a scan that wouldn't necessarily cause us any symptoms or problems. So uh, that's one of the difficulties about this area of, of pain and injury. Yeah, it's highly, highly individual. Uh, so just in terms of people's mindset, but like injury, should people, so I would have thought when I was younger that if you get injured, you did something wrong. But now I'm kind of updating that to more of a place of like, no, you're actually going to get injured. It's going to happen. Um, and it's more a case of like, instead of complete avoidance, it's like management. Like injury is is a case of managing it as it comes up and and kind of being like you said like a mature uh, athlete uh, getting better at managing injury. Um, do you think people should expect at some point to get injured, but just to be better at managing it, or is it realistic to think that like we could go through our whole lives without getting a serious injury? Yeah, I I don't um, I don't see how you could I, I don't think you can train hard in any. Sp- in any sport at least without getting injured. And to be honest, like, like I don't know anyone that hasn't gotten injured. I, I can't think of a single person athlete or not who hasn't had some form of injury because like life just happens. And, you know, I have niggles all over my body every now and then where my, you know, my knee might, might be sore. Maybe my ankle might be sore or my elbow might be sore for a while or my shoulder these things just come and go and they're part of the normal cycle of training. I don't consider them to be injuries, but other people might. And that is one of the difficult things here. Um, I think that experiencing, you know, niggles, maybe you have a bit of pain in your shoulder for a few weeks. It's sore at the bottom of your bench. These are normal parts of training. They're going to happen because you can't be pushing, pushing the bar, you know, literally and metaphorically with training consistently over multiple years or decades and not cross the line every now and then, you know, you're going to at some point push it a little bit too far or you get into an awkward position or it falls awkwardly or you drop the bar too fast. There's so many things that can happen that it's totally unrealistic to expect that you won't ever push your push your body a little bit further than it was ready to go at that point in time. Um, and if I look back, you know, have I had multiple injuries? Yeah, I have. But this is the first one that this is the first one that, you know, is, is probably a, a, what I would consider a severe injury. I've had a few moderate injuries in terms of, you know, ankle ligament sprains or um, what else have I had? Maybe some fractures, a couple of fractures, things like that. They're moderate injuries. And then the others, I call them niggles because they're just minor injuries. Like, yeah, you know, if I do too many sets of squats, my knee will hurt for a while. I don't worry too much about that because I'm just like, well, this is just part of the training process. I do some do less squats for a while, reduce my training volume and modify my range of motion for a couple of weeks. And then I'll be back at it again and I'll be fine. Um, I appreciate as well, though, that I'm in a bit of a, a bit of a privileged position in the sense that because I have the physio background, it's easier to reassure myself when those things come up. Whereas with other people, I can see how maybe if you heard something pop in your back while you were deadlifting and you you felt pain in your back and it was still sore the next day it might actually be really worrying for you because a lot of what we learn about pain and injury comes from what we've been exposed to growing up so for example let's say you had that grand aunt that has had a you know she's always had a sore back for 20 years and she's you know crippled on the couch she's never been able to get up and 
you know, they, your whole family is always worrying about back injuries. That's going to influence the way that you think about back pain and is thus going to influence your interpretation of that pain when it occurs. So I do appreciate that it's quite different being in my shoes versus being in the shoes of someone who might worry a lot about injuries as they pop up. But to answer your question, I don't think it's realistic to expect injuries not to happen. I do think you can obviously reduce the risk of them happening by training in a smart manner, as you said. Um, But even with that, especially if you're playing sport, sport necessarily involves some element of chaos. Like if you're doing a combat sport, you're doing a field sport, any type of sport, really, there's always an element of chaos and unpredictability and you can't control every variable. You'll drive yourself insane if you try to. Yeah. So kind of have a realistic outlook. And then also, I think if you do have a nagel or an injury, don't catastrophize and and make the situation worse. Yeah. I was going to just touch on low back pain, actually, that you mentioned it. I was going to just say, why is that? Why does it seem to be such a common injury? Yeah, so it's 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 definitely multifactorial. Um, So low back pain is, as you say, very common. Um, There's a number of different, I guess, sources you could have in terms of the the structures that could be a cause or contributor to low back pain, including um, the intervertebral discs, um, you know, they can herniate, they can bulge, they can, you know, press on some of the spinal nerves. You've got, you know, degenerative changes that can occur within the spine. This is very common with aging, a very normal part of aging, to be honest. Um, it's like the graying of our hair. Um, our spine is, you know, susceptible to similar changes in terms of degeneration. Um, they, those things can lead to pain. You can have, um, you know, muscle strains that occur within the back. You can have um, some of the other joints, the facet joints. You can get problems with those. Lots of different things that can occur. Um, and obviously, we use our backs a lot. So anytime, you know, you're, sta- you're standing up, your back muscles are always on. You're bending over, your back muscles are always on. So they're always doing a lot of work, for sure. Um, people who are doing, you know, physical tasks, um, sometimes, you know, if they're bending over and they, you know, move into an awkward position or they were doing too much, um, they might have, you know, low back pain following on from that, whether it be a minor muscle strain or sometimes you can have a disc bulge, whatever it happens to be. So there's there's that physical element to it where there's just a lot of different things that your back is involved in um, and we can be exposed to a lot of load in some cases, particularly in, you know, heavy physical jobs. and sometimes if you have a low level of physical preparedness and you're doing something that you weren't used to low back pain can result from that. So for example, you're not typically a physical person. You're not going to the gym and suddenly you're asked to move the couch or move the fridge. That's almost always how it happens. It's, it's these, these small little menial things where someone bends down to pick up a pencil and they're not used to being down in that position. And then they tweak their back. So there are some of the reasons that it occurs. We know as well that low back pain, you know, can be present in the absence of any of these changes that we've discussed uh, or, or that I just mentioned there in terms of there being a clear identifiable cause. And that's the case with most low back pain. We're not really able to say exactly what's contributing to it or what caused it. Um, and we know that things like uh, depression, anxiety, they can all increase risk of low back pain, high levels of stress um, and other psychosocial factors do significantly contribute to risk of developing low back pain as well. Um, And, you know, some of those things might have to do with, uh, you know, the, I guess, because the the interpretation of pain or the amplification of pain to some extent where, you know, you might have a bit of a sore back. And if you're like the word you used earlier, if you're catastrophizing about that, you're really worried about it. You're constantly trying to protect it. You're, you know, bracing your core and trying to move really rigidly to deal with that little bit of pain that you had, you're drawing all of your attention to it all the time. And that can actually lead to quite a bit of suffering in the presence of low back pain, where it mightn't have actually been a big thing initially, but it's now become a big thing for you um, psychologically. And that's not to say you can think your way in or out of pain. It's not that simple. Um, but there are, you know, psychosocial factors that are important there. Um, to, with all that said, we don't, necessarily know why you know low back pain is so common and it's there aren't great treatments there very often for low back pain we know that a certain proportion of people will 
develop low back pain and it won't get better for quite a while. You know, even if you listen to your physio and, and you do your exercise or you get a massage or whatever they tell you to do, sometimes it just won't get better. And that's one of the really difficult things about communicating with people in terms of pain. Sometimes people don't get better and that's very, you know, difficult for people to take at times. Yeah, that's a scary talk, but um, we'll just keep on trying anyway. Um, so <laughs> we'll try our best. We'll try our best. But um, Most people will improve. I should say that, and you know, it's not a, a dark note to finish on. If you hurt your back, it's probably going to get better. You're probably going to be fine. You know, I, I see this all the time with clients. They tweak their back deadlifting. No stress, right? We modify the program for a few weeks. You'll be fine in a few weeks. Most back tweaks are not serious. Most back tweaks or back pain that you experience is not a big deal. There can be some cases where it is, but most cases it's perfectly fine. And what I would also say, given that this is, I suppose, uh, you know, your your audience are probably gym goers. I would say a lot of people probably go to the gym. Um, think of your back similar to how you think of your quads or your biceps or anything else, because this is one of the biggest things I see among gym goers in particular, where if they experience back pain, even if it's just is like delayed onset muscle soreness, it's suddenly a big deal. Whereas they celebrate their quads burning, they celebrate their biceps burning, they celebrate their pecs burning. Totally different when it comes to the back. You know, someone does a workout, even if they're working their low back muscles during the workout, those muscles feel really pumped and sore. They're worried about that. They treat it very, very differently to how they would treat it if that pump or um, intra-session pain was to exist in another muscle. So remember, their muscles, they grow, they get stronger, and they will fatigue and burn just like any other muscle during training. Yeah, and don't uh, wrap yourself in cotton wool either and stop moving and, you know, uh, completely stop exercising. Yeah, yeah, do do what you can with what you have. And 100%. As, as someone who's got injured, uh, or I'd say experienced a lot of pain in my back, that uh, walking is a great uh, way to go, even though it's probably not as intense as, you know, the deadlift you want to do or whatever it is. Um, what's, been your, what's been your worst injury? My worst injury, I dislocated my shoulder. I had a grade three, I got hit by a car out here in San Francisco. I had a grade three yeah, dislocation and uh, it's crazy. Yeah, I have a titanium plate in my shoulder and now I'm like, so my coach, his nickname was like titanium strong. So it's kind of like, <laughs> I kind of made this whole story of like, oh, I'm titanium strong now because I have a titanium plate in my shoulder. And yeah. actually I did a, uh, a powerlifting meet after. So it's like, I actually did get stronger kind of in a way. So um Injury isn't the end of the world, and uh, you can definitely you, l- you can learn a lot from it. Like there's a there's a silver lining to an injury for sure. So I'm flipping it back on you now. Now tell me what was the biggest challenge with that for you, and the biggest reward? The biggest challenge, yeah, the inactivity. I would say it's um, a good question. Yeah, inactivity, just not being able to do your regular like schedule, your regular uh, activity that you wanted. And then you can actually, in in a sense, you almost feel weaker. You almost feel less capable when in reality, it's just you're dealing with a setback. That's all it is. Mm. Um, And the most rewarding thing then was, I guess, just been able to relate to clients and been able to say, you know, I actually know how it feels because up to that point, I actually hadn't had a serious injury. Um, So in a way, as I kind of said already, I'm kind of glad that I got injured, which is really interesting to say out loud like no i'm glad i got injured but yeah i am because i guess i'm very fortunate that i came back to the level of strength i'm at now so um yeah it um it definitely that, had a silver lining and that happened you out in the u.s did it? it did yeah yeah and what what was the process like in terms of seeking health care then and stuff uh so i just decided to come home and, and get it you know yeah, yeah, yeah i was gonna say because I, I was only having a conversation on about this last week that like you were living over in the US, do you need to have US health insurance? Can you have health insurance from Ireland that would cover you or, or what happens if you were to get that operation there? Like I imagine you'd be talking tens of thousands. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was recommended to come back here and uh, luckily I was able to get it taken care of and um, got everything sorted and I'm 100% now. Don't even notice the difference, which is mad. You can actually physically see slight dislocation on one side to the other, but I don't feel a difference, which is like, you know, really just blows my mind. But yeah, you can really make a full recovery and um, hopefully you do too as well. And, or no doubt you will, you know. Hope so. That's class though. That's class yeah. that you had that great outcome from surgery. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I would say actually, 
I was fortunate that I had a coach at the time. So I would say like, that's where coaching comes in. You know, you have that um, kind of ear to uh, to talk to when you're struggling and also a bit of support then like to just kind of do what you can with what you have and start rehabbing like you're doing that little bit of uh, training to get back, you know, building that strength up again. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't want to, I think that's, that's an important point is being totally on your own in the presence of injuries. It can make it more difficult because you start, um, you start second guessing everything. You don't know where to start with things. Sometimes you get stuck in a bit of a rut of doing nothing. Um, whereas, you know, when I was in, able to initially, when I got injured, consult with sports medicine physician, talk to some of my physio friends, you know, consult with the surgeon, all those types of things. You know, it, it feels like there's people in your corner now and we have a plan. So that's something I would say to people as well is, you know, if you're in a position now where you're injured, maybe you've had pain that's ongoing for a while, you've stopped training and you're like, is this the right move? Get some people in your corner, get some people holding you accountable, maybe hire a coach or whether it's see a physio or whatever, just have people in your corner that are helping you to build a plan and hold you accountable. And that is really what will help you get out of that position where you can just get a bit stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Have a, a bit of support uh, and a team as well around you just as much as you can to, uh, to lean into, because it's going to be tough. Like an injury is going to set you back. Um, Any questions they'd like to ask me after? Like, I appreciate this wasn't the longest or most detailed episode. We touched on a few things. Um, There's quite a, lot more you might be thinking in your own head so feel free to reach out to to me uh gary at skinny gaz on instagram or if you want to contact triage at triage thanks very much and uh to everything you said earlier about reaching out to you you're very uh given with your time so uh, i'd encourage anyone who has any questions for gary to reach out to him he's uh, very knowledgeable so thanks very much